Hello there, Alaskans, wherever you are. Welcome to the Must Read Alaska Show. Coming to you from somewhere in Alaska. This is the place where we talk about, you guessed it, Alaska. Where we keep the mainstream media on their toes and where we are standing up for what's right and a world run by leftists. You can find out more by heading over to mustreadalaska.com and also checking out the Must Read Alaska YouTube channel for some really great content. But first, let's get this party started. Well, welcome everybody to the Must Read Alaska show. I'm your host, John Quick, coming to you live from somewhere in Alaska. And boy, we are uh, excited for a little rain here on the Kenai Peninsula. Hopefully, we'll get some of that dust down. Uh, we finally have almost melted all the snow at my house. The snow, snowmageddon, the snow drama is almost over. There's just a teeny little patch in the backyard, and I cannot wait for it to be melted. And uh, on a lighter note, I want to thank everybody that listens, watches, and reads Must Read Alaska. We do this to spread conservative news through all the nooks and crannies of Alaska. And uh, we're just excited to have another show. For those of you that want to help support Must Read Alaska, you can go to mustreadalaska.com. And on the right-hand side there, there's a little donate button. You can click on that. Every $5, $10, $100 helps, keeps the lights on here at Must Read Alaska. We're not funded by some dark web money nonprofit conglomerate. We're just funded by everyday Alaskans who care about having an alternative news source. So if that is you, thank you so much for helping. And uh, without further ado, we have a very special guest today, Rick, who's the director of Power of the Future of Alaska, which is an awesome organization that is pro-resource development. We love having him on the show. Thanks so much, Rick, for joining us on the Must Read Alaska show. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity, John. It's going to be a fun couple of uh, couple couple topics today. Yeah, so you're kind of uh, you know a lot of folks. You you have a radio show that talks about resource development. A lot of folks look at you as kind of the resource development expert, and you've been kind of charged with that. And Power of the Future has been a great organization that helps you know be a positive advocate for things that Alaska people in Alaska care about, which is let's create some resources here and get some dang jobs going. Um, one of those projects is AKLNG. It's a fascinating project to me. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's one of could be one of the biggest projects in the world. Talk to me a bit. Talk to us a little bit, a little bit about what your thoughts are on the AKLNG project. Now it's AGDC. You know, there's been a bunch of different acronyms, but eventually, essentially, it's this huge natural gas project that Alaska has been talking about for what thirty years. Give us your scoop and your genie in a bottle predictions on this, if this could actually happen or not. Well, first of all, I love this project, right? It, you have 100 plus trillion cubic feet of natural gas stranded right now up on the North Slope. And, um, you know, we, we hear all the time about how Alaska could be facing an energy shortage from LNG in, in Cook Inlet, although I think there's some fallacy to that rumor. Um, I think that's, you know, put out there by the people that want to see us transition away from LNG to less reliable, more expensive sources. But but AKLNG could solve all that, John, and it could give an opportunity for Alaska to enrich itself with, with exports to the Pan-Pacific region, uh, where they also need LNG as a, as a good, reliable source of, of fuel and power. So, um, you know, AKLNG, $43 billion, it has almost $30 billion of federal loan guarantees. Um, I had uh, Frank Richards, who's the head of AGDC on my show just last week, and you can catch that on soundcloud.com. If you wanna hear that full interview, just search for Power of the Future and look at last week's show. But you know, he was on the show talking about 
the things that have happened here recently with the Biden administration. The Department of Energy uh, had had asked for a pause on the project so that they could look at a couple of things. And just a couple of weeks ago, the uh, Energy Department came out and, and reaffirmed the export plan for AKLNG. Nice. That's huge because certainly if you know if and when it gets built, and we're going to think positive here, John, and say it's going to get built, um, it will. You know, the the export plan will be what enriches Alaska. Um, aside from that first take that everybody talks about um, giving Alaskans gas for, again, heat and power all the way up and down the rail belt. Um, that export will be what, what drives the, the you know, revenue creation from the project. Um, and so when Frank was on, he talked about the fact that the, the Biden loan guarantees in the Inflation Reduction Act are huge, as is the reauthorization of the, uh, of the uh, export plan. Here's what I think is so exciting about this project. Number one, 2,500 to 3,000 construction jobs. It'll be the largest construction project since the pipeline. Yeah. Couple hundred, 300, 400 full-time jobs after that. But it's, again, 100 years of Alaska's gas for Alaska's use to take care of any you know concerns that anybody has about running out of fuel and then having to revert to renewables, which let's be honest, don't work and won't work in Alaska the way that the uh, the eco left wishes. Yeah, the, when the Tesla battery, God bless Tesla, but when the ba Tesla battery only lasts twenty minutes in a car in the dead of winter, it's uh, doesn't have uh, much high hopes for changing the game here in Alaska. <laughs> no, it's a, it's a really tough road to hoe, right? If you're if you're part of that whole just transition movement you know we really don't need fossil fuels anymore well first of all you're not ever going to get to green and i use that in air quotes without exponentially increasing mining and you're you're not going to get to green without a whole ton of um burning coal because coal is the only thing that makes steel it's the only way you forge steel and all of these green projects need steel in order to happen so you know again the hypocrisy and just the outright dishonesty of the left when it comes to quote unquote going green is um, is laughable. And we try to expose that that idiocy uh, with power of the future. And, you know, again, I think we do a pretty good job. I think it's hilarious when like um, somebody shows up to maybe a public meeting and they're wearing their Patagonia gear with their Mac top or with their MacBook laptop and they've driven there in a Subaru and they have, you know, Nikes on. And they're protesting um, further oil exploration. It just, it just cracks me up. <laughs> yeah, you know, I have a shirt that says "I love fossil fuels." It's made out of cotton. Um, <laughs> you know, it's it's pretty it's pretty funny because I mean, I could have made, probably gotten it printed on you know polar fleece or or some sort of uh, synthetic, but I think it's really funny because it's it's so you know it shows the dichotomy between reality. And, um, you know, the hypocrisy, right? Oh, yeah, we hate fossil fuels in the just transition movement, but you use them every day. We hate mining, but you'd rather enrich China. I know I, I, I know we're going to talk about China later on, John, but, um, you know, just again, the eco lefts walking their talk is um, non-existent in most cases. So what do you think on a scale of one to 10, do you think this project's going to actually happen Give us your prediction. They, they need about $150 million to do the 
feed assessment. And then, you know, once the feed assessment's done, um, then they find a full investor for the rest of the project. That feed assessment timeline is the next 14 to 18 months. I think they get through that uh, pretty easily. I think they'll find an investor willing to, to help put up the $140, you know, $150 million. Again, the project has a lot of um, push from the Biden administration. Rahm Emanuel has kind of taken the lead on that. Dan Sullivan, Lisa Murkowski, Mary Peltola, all of them, Governor Dunleavy, all supportive of the project. Again, once you get the Biden administration on not walking their talk, right? We hate traditional energy, but we love Alaska LNG. That's great for Alaska. Um, they get through feed. Then I say it's probably 60-40 that it, that it ultimately ever happens. Nice. But I'll take 60-40. Like that's better than what I'll it's been for the last three decades. Yeah, that's what that's better than what uh, former Speaker of the House Chenault was saying, you know, five years ago. Now he's pretty excited about it. Um, now that he's back, he think he's back on the AGDC board. And, and you know, there's like a lot of good players that are involved now. And like you said, most of our elected officials are pro for it. So, man, if they ever had a shot of making some headway, I think now's the time. So, um, well, well, yeah, John, and, I, and here's the biggest difference, right? Public perception back when Governor Walker was in and trying to give away Alaska's riches and Alaska's power and Alaska's control and Alaska's finances to China, that was never going to fly. And again, it's just another faux pas um, from the Walker administration. Thank God Dunleavy um, and AGDC board are doing it the right way this time, which is enriching, you know, enriching Alaska first and, and not worrying about the communist Chinese. Yeah, I like the way the governor's doing it. And uh, it's no nonsense. And he only talks about things that are happening as opposed to you know, 27 press releases a day under the former governor. So, yeah. Um, so let's talk a little bit about, uh, let's give, uh, let's talk a little bit about Trump. So, because I think, you know, Alaska has been under the thumb of Biden now for a couple years. Looking back on Trump's four years in office, what kind of a score would you give Trump for, for being pro-resource development and for being pro-Alaska? Pro Donald Trump is a 10 out of 10. He, um, you know, I'm, I'm older than I want to give myself credit for. Um, I grew up, you know, my first foray into like knowing about politics was Reagan. So, you know, everything has been couched as how did it look, you know, how did this president compare to Reagan? And Trump on energy policy, strongest, strongest I've seen. Trump on uh, pro-Alaska, strongest I've seen. The only thing that Trump failed on um, when it came to Alaskan energy policy was not getting Pebble through after he said there would be no politics in it, right? Yeah. Um, but really, truly, what he and his administration were able to do to advance domestic energy prosperity, domestic energy independence, domestic energy worldwide dominance, I'm not sure we'll ever see another president make those kind of strides uh, again in my lifetime. So when folks, you know, I think some people get discouraged and they think, well, I'm not, you know, I'm not even going to care about getting involved or even voting because the president doesn't really affect me. I mean, do you think it's a fair argument that we could point to Trump as an example and say, listen, it actually does affect you. And here are some positive ways that he actually affected Alaska. Well, I think you can look at what I just said about Trump and then take the zero score out of a one through 10 with President Biden as, as you know, the polar opposite, right? Yeah. 
Yeah. Biden has come up with 52 executive or administrative orders directly tied to Alaska resource opportunities. Two of them may be considered wins. AKLNG, although again, there's still a lot of um, room that need, you know, things that have to happen for AKLNG to come to fruition. And the so-called win around Willow, which certainly I count it as a win. Um, but the, the other 50 decisions that team Biden has come up with, John, have thwarted, hurt, stymied, delayed resource development opportunities in the state. Uh, two for 52 gets you sent down to the minor leagues in baseball. Two for 52 <laughs> gets you cut off of a, of a sports roster. Heck, two for 52 in an everybody plays league gets your kid in in the bottom of the last inning just for an at-bat because you have to. Yet that's what Team Biden is saying are wins for America. I totally disagree. So he's he's Trump's got a ten out of ten. Biden's got sounds like maybe a zero out of ten. Yeah, zero. What, what can you know? What can Alaskans do? We got a president that's, in your opinion, a zero out of ten. Can we contact our elected officials? Can the state House and Senate do something? I mean, what what should the average Alaskan do that's sitting in their couch or sitting in their car listening to this, thinking, "Well, shoot." I might as well just give up. We got a zero out of 10 with Biden. What well, can they do? Well, so first of all, thank God we only have two more years left of the of the zero. <laughs> um, unless America is stupid or masochistic, one of the two. But here in Alaska, um, continue to get involved at the local level because all politics is local. And make sure that things like utility boards, assemblies, um, school boards, although we're not talking energy policy with schools, although they are, you know, if you get the right school board, they don't teach that, you know, there's a climate crisis in your third grade classroom, yeah. um, you know, because that's uh, debunked. Um, but, you know, getting involved at a local level, continuing to let your legislators know that you support responsible development, that non-binary choice uh, where we can have it both ways between Responsible development and environmental stewardship is important. Um, letting the governor know that we support, uh, you know, most uh, most of not uh, most of what he's doing, right? Um, the the fight for 404 primacy that Jason Bruni and others are um, fighting for, where we would control the the wetlands permitting process and not have it be held hijacked by um, environmental extremists in you know career bureaucratic roles and in uh, the EPA, for example, that's a big deal. Yeah. Um, it takes money. The state legislature has waffled around on whether or not that's going to get funded in this year's budget. Um, I think the final, at least what's coming out of the Senate today, is that it's going to get mostly funded. But again, you know, working working to make sure that people know that this is a, it, you know, this is really the, the cornerstone for Alaskan industry. A quarter of all Alaska private sector jobs are directly or indirectly tied to oil and gas. All of state government is paid for by oil and gas, whether it's direct royalties, John, or whether it's that um, it, uh, amazing investment of the permanent fund, which is really driven by state royalties to begin with, right? Yeah. So you're, you're, you know, the majority, 70, 80% of the state government is paid for by the oil and gas industry. It can't go away. It, there's too much opportunity. There's too much mining opportunity. And again, you know, we'll get rid of the zero at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue here, um, hopefully 
soon. Yes, let's, um, you know, some of these Biden policies are just crazy. And some of these um, wanting to go green policies that are affecting cities across America are crazy as well. I think the city of Seattle just banned maybe last year or the year before any new construction cannot no longer have natural gas in them. And we've seen uh, making the news, you know, um, folks, natural gas stoves could be banned uh, down the future. Talk to me about some of these just crazy policies coming from the left that, you know, seem to be living in, you know, the metaverse <laughs> as opposed to the real world with with all the rest of us. <laughs> yeah, it's a great point, right? So we've already seen Congress push back on eco-left stupidity. So now Team Biden just figures that they should just executive order everything into existence. Um, Jennifer Granholm, right before Christmas last year, was speaking and she said, you know, we have a hundred over a hundred regulations that we plan to implement related to household everyday living, appliances and things like that. And not everybody kind of picked up on that. We did at Power of the Future. And we were like, a hundred? Holy cow, what's uh, what's gonna happen next? Then you heard about the gas stove ban, John. And you've seen cities like Berkeley and Seattle and New York, um, a lot of those, you know, blue lead cities. Um come out with with regulations to try to stop the <clears throat> climate crisis, right? By enacting all these uh, anti, you know, traditional energy measures. But look at what team Biden has done since December. They've come out and said, gas stoves, bad. Uh, dishwashers need to use less water and less energy. Well, you know, the, the National uh, Manufacturing Association for Appliances has said, look, when you took it from five gallons of water per per wash to three and a half, what you did when you did that was take the average wash cycle from an hour long to almost two and a half hours long. That's how much longer it takes to wash your dishes now versus 10 years ago. So are you really saving the environment and saving the planet when you use two and a half times longer duration more energy, more electricity to save a gallon and a half of water. I wash my dishes twice sometimes because no matter whether I soak them or whatever, they don't get they don't get clean. Um, you're seeing that with hot water heaters. You're seeing it with um, with dryers and clothes washers. Now they're reaching into all different parts of our lives. And and I don't know about you, John, but I don't know who in government is an expert in manufacturing of appliances. And, and then I don't know why government shouldn't just let the free market work and let the market create the efficiencies rather than having them mandated from on high in Team Biden. Yeah, the famous quote from Reagan, I think, I'm here from the government. And I'm here, here to help. To help. <laughs> it should be very concerned about that statement. <laughs> well, even our founding fathers, right? The Declaration of Independence pointed out the fact that they were writing this document in part to um, to save America from superfluous regulation, right? And that's not the exact quote, but you know, inane regulation isn't the government's to give you. The government is to do certain things, you know, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. It's not to regulate you out of your dishwasher. I, I just don't understand why the the eco left thinks that that's the right approach to take when there isn't a crisis that, you know, necessitates it. 
So is this, do you think this is things that the governor and our state house should be fighting against? Do you think they're doing enough? Do you think they should be doing more? I certainly think that they're, you know, the, the, the problem with the legislature is, is, is always budget focused, right? Almost every year we get into the, the end of the session and there's this big fight about the budget. Um, there's a fight about retirement systems. There's, re, there's a fight about power cost equalization. There's a fight about, you know, how to pay for uh, base student allocation increases. Pushing back on idiocy in the federal government is really the job of our co congressional delegation. I think they do a good job of it. Certainly Dunleavy does a good job of pushing back. Treg Taylor has joined, um, has joined uh, you know, other attorneys general and other secretaries of state to push back on Biden's idiocy. But, you know, again, America needs to be vigilant and Alaskans need to be uh, knowledgeable. And, you know, they can get information from people like Suzanne and you who do a great job of disseminating that. They can get it from us, powerthefuture.com or on Twitter at, you know, PTF Alaska or at Power of the Future. I mean, we try to expose climate hypocrisy, eco-left stupidity, and regulation that harms America at the, you know, at, at the expense of jobs and, and opportunity. I like that. So let's, let's um, turn the page for, for a second and talk about Willow, because I think this is a kind of a fascinating project for folks. You know, if I were to ask my neighbors or friends about it, most people that I talk to kind of think it's a political football. Um, and so I'm curious to hear your thoughts on the project. If, if you think it has some teeth or is this just something people are gonna use for the next seven election cycles to, to potentially win or lose an election? First of all, I think Will is an amazing project, right? It never should have had to have gotten reevaluated by the Biden administration, except for the, the radical environmentalists that are embedded in that administration couldn't let a fossil fuel project go without fighting it. Um, but let's talk about Willow, 180,000 barrels a day. That's almost, it's over a third of what currently goes through TAPS coming out of that one project. It's a tremendous, tremendous opportunity for Alaska. You know, we talk about AKLNG and the opportunity between Willow and Pika, 240, 250,000 barrels a day. Think about that. That's a 50% uplift from what's currently going through TAPS every day. Now, Willow, I said earlier in the, in the show, Willow was a partial win. Yes, Willow got approved, but it was three-fifths of the original scope, right? Instead of five drilling pads, Conoco was limited to three. Um, they had to give back some other lease-held land in order to appease the Biden administration. And then the biggest loss in that, again, it's a win for that actual project, but at what cost? Because Biden, by executive order, withdrew opportunities for 15.8 million acres in the NPRA and Beaufort and Chukchi Seas as part of that trade-off that he tried to appease the eco-left with. By the way, they went apoplectic because the quote-unquote carbon bomb of Willow is a real project and those 15.8 million acres are, you know, vaporware right now, right? I look at it the other way. Win for ConocoPhillips to be able to produce 60% of what it wanted, but who knows how many jobs 
how many opportunities, how many billions of barrels of oil or trillions of cubic feet of natural gas were set off limits, by the way, in the National Petroleum Reserve here in Alaska. That's a congressionally mandated area. And Biden locked up, you know, 40 percent of it. How big a deal do you think it is for our three delegates to be kind of on the same page of the with this and fighting towards one goal as opposed to, you know, everybody being on a different page or book about it? I think um, certainly, you know, whether it's I think it's good that Peltola, Sullivan and Murkowski are all in sync. I, I think it's great that the legislature passed um, House Resolution one unanimously. Right. I think it's great that the governor supported it. I think it's great that labor supported it. Very rarely do you get all of that synergy. Right. The voice of the Arctic and Nupiat. Everybody kind of came together. The vast majority of Alaska. Again, believes in responsibly done development. It's just the it's just the fringe, you know, small pockets of society that think that we can't do it well. We shouldn't do it well. And, you know, and we need to just transition away from hydrocarbons in some utopian fantasy world of theirs. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't quite work like that, I don't think. <laughs> no. Go back to your comment about they're wearing their Patagonia using their iPhone and, yeah. you know, driving there in their Subaru and they and they want to get rid of fossil fuels. Yeah, if somebody walked to a, you know, public open meeting it, it, with a burlap sack on and it took them, you know, four months to get there. I'm going to listen to that person, <laughs> but they show walk up the, in there. Walk the talk guys. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like I was, I was at, um, I was at a oil, uh, I think blue crest here on the peninsula while, I mean, this was like three or four years ago. And there was literally somebody in like some sort of burlap sack outside on the highway protesting and didn't have any shoes on. And I was like, I'm going to listen to that guy. <laughs> he's he walked here from somewhere and he has yeah. no shoes i mean and he's got like a park on <laughs> it, it, it's great you know john Kerry. i'm gonna i'm gonna throw a john Kerry uh, story in here really fast right guy owns multiple mansions multiple cars multiple private jets and he's the climate he's the biggest climate hypocrite you know he and bill gates right are the two biggest climate hypocrites that probably in the u.s if not the world oh we need to divest well you know I buy carbon offsets every time that I travel privately because that that so that saves the planet. No, it doesn't, John. Carbon offsets and carbon sequestration and carbon everything is just another way for a, a person with a guilty conscience to try to assuage their guilt. Period. So let's talk about China and the U.S. I think yeah, um, a lot of Alaskans started thinking about this when Walker was trying to you know, sell off the LNG kind of plant to China. I remember at one point, because um, I was the chief of staff for the Kenai Peninsula Borough when that was happening, I remember at one point there was talks of having all the labor for building the camp come from China. And um, I don't know if that ever made it out into the public sphere, but I remember being in a meeting talking about that with public officials. And so I think, you know, people get worried about, those kinds of things and a lot, you know, us just normal everyday Alaskans. Um, talk to you. Talk, so talk to us about China's kind of involvement with the U.S. kind of at our own expense. And if if that's good or bad, in your opinion. Well, it's horrible. Right. I mean, so we have seen China over the last 30 years decide that they want to be the global superpower. 
They have a Belt and Road Initiative where they're building everything, right? They're opening up two coal-fired power plants a week Jeez. in China right now. Two a week. Why? I told you. Almost all manufacturing can be more efficiently done with coal as your heat source rather than any other type of, um, of power. If you're going to make steel, if you're going to uh, fuse solar panel layers together, if you're going to you know, manufacture a lot of electronics, coal's the way to do it. And so China could give a rip about the environmental consequences of world domination, right, John? They, they own the supply chain for everything from pharmaceuticals. And we saw the damage that was being done, you know, during COVID, right? Where they said, oh, wait, 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 US, mm, Europe, mm, you know, we need our pharmaceuticals. We need our N95 masks. We need our respirators. And I know that you guys need them too, but we're going to take care of China and our allies first. That's why people like Ford and MyPillow and all the distilleries, President Trump was able to get them to, you know, change up their manufacturing and start building respirators and, and PPE. And, you know, all the distilleries started making hand sanitizer. Yeah, I think that's, we that's a great point because I think a lot of people forget that. Like, yeah. we, didn't, we didn't have any of that stuff. Like, we didn't, we didn't, because we, we, on China. Make, because we don't make anything in the US anymore, we didn't have those super fancy hospital things and the PPE and the masks and the, all the, even just hand sanitizer. We literally, nobody was making hand sanitizer. Trump had to step in and make it happen. And had he not done that, we would have been up the creek without a paddle. Oh, yeah. And, and so then let's think about this, right? Pharmaceuticals, uh, medical equipment, military technology is almost is, is majority made in China. U.S. military technology, not made here, made over there. Um, and now they make almost 80% of the world's green energy components and panels and wind turbine blades and everything like that. So as we, and I say we, meaning the talk about transitioning away into renewable solutions, first of all, I think it's laughable. Second of all, it's more expensive. Third of all, it's less reliable. And fourth of all, it empowers the communist Chinese because they make 80% of the world's uh, technology. They manufacture 80%. So why would we give them and cede control of our energy grid supply chain to China? But that's what the left wants to do because we're not making it at home and we're not mining it at home. We can look at Pebble. We can look at Twin Metals up in, um, up in Minnesota. We can look at Avaquame down in Nevada. We can look at all these opportunities for domestic mining gone awry and gone amok because of the eco-left's insistence that mining is bad for fish, for the environment, for whatever. Uh, we're not we're not mining in America. We're so not manufacturing you, in America. What do you we're, say to the person who thinks, yes, we've we've won something because you know the mine in Minnesota is not going to happen anymore. You know this mine's now going to be in some third world country with no regulations. Talk a little bit about that, just to paint a picture of this is going to happen somewhere in the world. It might as well happen in the U.S. where we're at least, you know, enjoy playing in our rivers and streams. Yeah, well, first of all, all one has to do is look at the river colors in China, right? They're, they're, they're orange. Yeah. They, they are, they're polluted. Uh, the last time I checked, the U.S. doesn't allow slave labor, but China does. Um, 
the Congo does where a lot of the lithium is made. Child labor. People as young as six, four, five, hand mining lithium in the Congo under Chinese control, by the way. So the Chinese war, I mean, the Chinese government has gone in and paid off the warlords in Ghana and the Congo to allow slave child labor to by hand grab chunks of cobalt and lithium, wash it in a mercury solution and load it by hand into burlap bags that are then drugged to the processing facility. And yet that's progress because we can't mine it in America under the strictest OSHA regulations, under the strictest environmental regulations. That's what the people who say no pebble, no twin metals, no Abiquame, none of that, that's what they're empowering. And that's what they're actually championing. Instead of made in America, mined in America, manufactured in America, you know, let's let's kill gays and lesbians in these countries. Let's use child labor. Let's enslave political prisoners and put them to work in some of the most horrible working conditions. And we somehow call that environmental and social progress. It's kind of sick, but that's what the eco left would rather have us do than make it in make it in America. America produces energy very friendly to the environment. The most friendly, you think? Oh, by far. Well, you know, there's there's studies out that show that we have dropped our emissions over the last 20 years by almost a quarter. We've done it through fracking. We've done it through in, increased use of LNG. We've done it through free market economics and free market innovation. Now we're starting to take steps backwards, right? Where we're getting government mandates instead of ingenuity driving the market. Um, but for the last 20 years, we've dropped our emissions in the US. No other country, uh, you know, in, in no other first world country can claim as big a drop as, as we can. By the way, the EU's tried, but they've gone away from things like nuclear to wind and solar. Again, given control of their grid to China, given control of their LNG to Russia. Um, and then this last year, when kind of the crap hit the fan, they were looking at energy costs, John, that were three, four, five, six, seven times higher year over year than they were the winter of 21, 22. 22, 23, had it not been a warmer than normal winter in Europe, um, people would have literally died because they couldn't have paid their, their power bill. I picture Europe with those like Danish windmills trying to make it happen. <laughs> yeah, the last time I checked, that's not a very good. Uh, I mean, we saw that in Texas, right? Back in, in February of 2021, ERCOT, uh, the Texas Regulatory Commission, basically went wind and, you know, wind happy. And then they had a freeze and the wind turbines froze and people died. A couple hundred people died in Texas of all places. Yeah. That's yeah, people, people were that's starting. People were starting uh, like campfires in their house, in their living room floors to try to keep warm. That that should never happen in America, but that's what we're headed towards, right? We're headed towards rolling blackouts. We're headed towards an electric grid that isn't going to be able to control or keep up with demand, especially as you take things that are run on natural gas and move them to electric. Heat pumps, water heaters, um, stoves, cars, right? As you plug all of those in and transition away from gas and these leftist locations push this narrative that we have to get off gas and get on electric and we have to make the electric all renewable, 
you're you're forcing your grid to be overburdened, and, and that's not good. We've seen what's happened in Europe. We've seen what's happened. Well, even in, in Cali Texas. California, they can't. California, they right? They can't handle the the Tesla grids because the Tesla cars draw more power. If every person on your street's got a Tesla car, that's drawn more power than their actual houses are. Well, and here's the idiocy, right? And 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 I know we're gonna run up against time, um, but if you're in a big city and you're in a big apartment complex and you're in, you know, site condos and you're in, in multifamily, you know, multi-dwelling housing, where are you going to plug in your Tesla? Most of this, most of this parking in big cities is in parking garages and on the street. And sometimes you have to park three, four five blocks away from your home and, and walk back home because that's the closest place you can get. I, I have friends in Boston. I have friends in, in New York city. And that's exactly what they do. They literally park blocks away. Do they have a, a, a Tesla charger if that happens three blocks away from their home? Or is the, is the parking garage that they park in at their you know, 700 uh, uh, apartment complex building going to come up with 700 Tesla charging stations in the parking garage? No. Number one, the grid wouldn't hold it. Number two, it would be practically impossible and number three, uh, people, they're going to break. And then what happens to yours when it breaks? You're going to go use your neighbors. And it's <laughs> going to just be a big cluster. But again, this is the world that the eco-left somehow thinks is progress. It's poppycock. It's kind of just dumbfounding. But this is the world we live in, and we got to keep fighting. That's how I look at it. So and I'm sure that's how you look at it, too. That's why you're doing what you're doing. Let's talk a little bit about Pebble. Um, you know, I think when I talk to people about Pebble, just even just in conversations or around the dinner table or something like that, it's mostly negative. It's rolling their eyes. It's gosh, this thing's never going to happen. It's that seems to be the biggest political football that, you know, has been used uh, as of recently uh, here in Alaska, going back and forth with giving it a chance, never going to happen. Give us your thoughts on Pebble and kind of where we're at and uh, if you think it's got a chance still. I still think it has a chance. I still think that the world needs Pebble. So I was on the Bob Bird show on Voice of the Keynote here uh, two weeks ago, and we spent 45 minutes on Pebble, John. Here, here's, here's why he wanted me on. And here's why I will give you the very abbreviated version of that, right? There's a trillion dollars of copper, gold, uranium, molybdenum in that mine that's that's known i'm sure there's more than that a, a trillion dollars worth of asset if the world really wants to go green and again we can debate the merits of that but if there's this push to go green and a push to you know start using less hydrocarbons and a push to go electric and all of this crap that's going on in the world today you need 17 pebbles by 2050 to be open and producing copper 17 pebbles if you shut down the biggest one that's known in the Western hemisphere, what does that say for your chances to find 16 more that are somehow going to get opened up, right? So the other thing about Pebble that I think is, um, is absolutely mismessaged by Pebble is that they have a clean environmental impact statement. Pebble didn't get preemptively vetoed because of the science. The science was clear. In the final environmental impact statement, 53 times in that 1,100-page report, and I've read it cover to cover a number of times, 
they talk about the fact that Pebble and the Bristol Bay fishery coexist beautifully. Little to no impact to the Bristol Bay fishery in the worst case scenarios. Like, you know, worst case scenario, it has a minimal impact on the Bristol Bay fishery. And Realistically, this, is the, and this isn't Burke saying that. This isn't just like, this isn't some like, you know, oil executive saying that. Right. This is the most regulated regulation arm of the United States government saying this. Th this is the NEPA pro process, <laughs> the National Environmental Policy Act, which even the NRDC, who fought Pebble left and right, right, says is the Magna Carta of environmental law. They called it the Magna Carta of environmental law. It's the process that gave Pebble effectively a clean bill of health, scientifically. So why did it get stopped? It got stopped on politics. It got stopped on um, really, really bad public backlash to an environmental group secretly taping Pebble executives called yeah. the Pebble Tapes. And what was said was that during those tapes um, were abominable and abhorrent and out-and-out -out lies and braggadocio. And Pebble deserved every bit of public and governmental backlash that it got on that. But you can't over you can't override the fact that the science is clear that it's a good project and it's a safe project and it's a it's a, a trillion dollar project. It's 600, 700 full-time jobs, 2,500 construction jobs, and a generational opportunity for people of the Lake Iliamna area that they don't have. They're not fishermen by and large. It would be generationally changing, just like Red Dog did to the Northwest Arctic Borough or like Prudhoe did for the people on the North Slope Borough. It's generationally, you know, 60, 70% of the people in that area are below the poverty line. It would so what, what's, the next, what's the next step for Pebble? Because I think people are just, including myself, confused. What does it do from here? Does it, yeah, so, so does it need more money? Does it need more permits? Does it need this? What does it need? Yeah, it, it needs to win in court. Um, it is going to go to court to fight the EPA appeal or I mean, the preemptive veto. They're going to appeal that. They also just got, actually got a win from the um, Army Corps of Engineers Pacific Command, which is based in Hawaii, which looked at the decision to deny the permit from the Alaska Corps and said, eh, we don't, we don't think that that was factually based. We oh, think it was politically good. based. Good. Go back and look at it again, guys, and, and take another look at it and look back at the science instead of the political shenanigans that went on. Right Again, the science is clear. If the science is clear, John, and the politics got in the way on what should be a non-political process, I think Pebble wins that appeal. I think Pebble is given the opportunity. Now, they still have to overcome the absolute politics of an EPA veto, which has only been done a handful of times in EPA history. Um, but I also think that the zero in the White House goes away in two years and you hopefully get a more responsibly development-centric president. You have Governor Dunleavy on state. By the way, that, that whole project's on state land. Yeah. It's a trillion dollars of state asset. Dunleavy should be fighting for that. Um, the legislature is going to be split because people like Bryce Edgman hate Pebble. Lyman Hoffman's not a big proponent, you know, but people who don't live and die by the lie of Save Bristol Bay and people who actually look at the science 
and don't look at the fear over facts narrative, um, you know, like say Bristol Bay and the, the Alaska Center and everybody else has been trying to put out about Pebble for 15 years, the science is clear. Pebble should happen. So is the, is the uh, future bright for Alaska? Are you hopeful that Alaska's better days are still ahead of itself? So we wrote, we underwrote a um, a white paper through ICER at the end of 2021 that showed that Alaska's mineral potential could be as much as five times greater in the next 20 years than what it was currently. So what it was at the end of 2021, between if you were to get the right regulatory environment, you could have a 5x impact on the state of Alaska from what it's doing now. Nice. Anwar, Willow. Pika, awesome opportunities. And there's more, you know, Moose's Tooth and other projects, right? Lots of opportunity there. Um, the West Sioux Access, the Ambler Project, all of those are job creators without environmental damage. Um, you know, I've been in Alaska now. I was born here, raised outside, came back. I've been here since 1987. I think our best days are ahead of us. And that's from somebody who's been here for, you know, a long time, 36 years. <laughs> nice. Um, so tell, tell folks where they can find, they're going to listen to this and be like, I got to figure out this. I got to read more about what this guy's talking about. I got to listen to what he's saying. Tell folks where they can find all your um, stuff at. Sure. So we're on powerthefuture.com. Uh, that's probably kind of our, our main hub of, um, you know, of, of content. We also have a YouTube channel. Just search for Power of the Future. Uh, my radio program is on every Tuesday, replayed on Saturday. Suzanne Downing is going to be on tonight, by the way, everybody. Um, you can listen to that at 1020kvnt.com or if you're in South Central Alaska on 92.5 FM or 1020 AM on KVNT. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at PTF Alaska or the organization at Power of the Future. Uh, we're on Instagram. We're on Facebook, both under Power of the Future. Um, you Again, if you just Google Power of the Future, you can find it. <laughs> you can find it. And we're pretty, um, you know, for a three person organization, I think we punch way above our weight. You know, we'll we'll pop out um, two or three national op eds a week between the team. And, you know, we fight for America's energy jobs, America's energy opportunity, and against this narrative that's completely fabricated that uh, America's best days are behind it. And that we need to get away from what has made America great from an energy perspective, which is hydrocarbons. There, there isn't a need to make this rushed transition um, when, when really those jobs, there's 10 million Americans that work in energy creation. The vast majority of them are in rural America. Why would you want to harm you know, our, our most vulnerable areas? Well, any last minute thoughts here before we head off? You know, appreciate the opportunity. I mean, certainly... Um, what Must Read does for the political dialogue in the state is incredible. Um, we're, you know, we're happy to be partnered with you guys. And, um, you know, I, I think that people who care about Alaska, who care about Alaska's future, who want a better tomorrow, um, need to need to support both of us with clicks and uh, and listens and shares and and everything because you know what you and Suzanne and the team do um, is needed. And I, you know, I, and I know that uh, the best job I've ever had in my 30 years in business is this one because it makes it it makes a difference 
for everyday Alaskans each and every day. Awesome. Well, Rick, I appreciate you joining us here on the Must Read Alaska show. And I want to thank everybody that listens, watches, and reads Must Read Alaska. We're going to put all Rick's information and websites and all that kind of thing in the podcast description. So if you didn't get a chance to quickly write it down, you can just look at the podcast description and we'll have a link to um, Power of the Future right there in the podcast description. Rick, you're welcome back anytime uh, you'd like. Love to do it. And until next time, I'm John Quick from somewhere in Alaska. Thanks so much.